Okie dokie. Welcome to this episode of the Primordia Podcast, your source for strange. If you don't already know, Primordia is part of the Green Mushroom Podcast Network, as are other great independent shows like the Lux Occult Podcast, Unearthing Paranormalcy, Ad Hoc History, Grognostics, and this week's feature, XV Planus. Let's go ahead and listen to a little bit about them. Welcome to XV Planus. Greetings, friends, fiends, and lovers of strange and wondrous things. My name is Flood, and I am the host of XV Planus, a bi-weekly podcast of the odd and unusual. The core of XV Planus is a documentary-style exploration into paranormal investigations that I and my ever-evolving group of magical misfits conduct. We take a look at the history, the mystery, then go see it for ourselves, and then we bring that experience, and on occasion, that evidence, to your ears. Alongside the investigations, you'll find a treasure trove of other content, like interviews with authors, art historians, mediums, UFO researchers, cryptid hunters, fellow paranormal investigators, as well as deep dives into the arts, exploring topics like the killing joke frontman Jazz Coleman's magical practices, and how that propelled the band forward, and whether or not David Lynch was really conducting occult rituals through Twin Peaks The Return. So follow XV Planets today and get caught up on the journey, because I can promise you, it only gets stranger from here. I'll see you on the fifth plane. All right. Before we dive into the content, which is not so much spooky as it is interesting this time around, or at least I thought so, let's review some shit. There's a sale in the Etsy shop, so go check that out if you um, feel so inclined to. Um, I feel inclined lately to make more runes and oem soon, so I'm sure those will be a thing or things that will be available. I am working on completing the other half of a mini oem set made from real bone, so if I decide to put that up for sale, it will be available. There's something else I wanted to tell you guys, but I can't quite put my finger on Welcome, Strange Seeds, to the first annual Camp Strange. <laughs> Once you cross the camp gates, prepare yourselves for a week of weird, of strange and spooky, eerie and bizarre. There will, of course, be completely normal fun camp activities, including ghost hunting, campfire stories, attempts at extraterrestrial contact, and seances. So bring your life preservers and spiritual protection. You'll need them. And join us at Camp Strange. Um, well, that was interesting. Stay tuned, I guess, for more information on whatever the fuck that was. Someone has definitely been playing with the sound equipment lately, so she could be up to something. Um, 
Without further interruptions, let's dive into the history of ghost hunting methods and equipment. Mostly equipment. <laughs> Hopefully you won't be too bored with this episode. In the late months of 1920, our good pal Thomas Edison told a reporter for the American Magazine that he was working on a new invention, a ghost machine. Edison was into his 70s at this point, but was still tinkering with new things, you know, as like ways to communicate across many channels, including those of the other side. This ghost machine that he created is an enigma because there are no existing blueprints, prototypes, etc. of the thing, though Edison himself reportedly said he had hoped to finish it soon after that article was written. Now, Edison did want it to be based solely on science and using scientific methods to record and observe. He, in fact, said, I have been at work for some time building an apparatus to see if it is possible for personality <laughs> personalities which have left this earth to communicate with us. Edison told Forbes this. If this is ever accomplished, it will be accomplished not by any occult, mystifying, mysterious, or weird means, such as are employed by so-called mediums, but by scientific methods. There was another interview given by Edison to another magazine titled Scientific American, published in the same month and year as the American Magazine article, that quoted Edison as saying, Quote, I have been thinking for some time of a machine or apparatus which could be operated by personalities which have passed on to another existence or sphere. Now, obviously this is in contrast with the first mentioned magazine article and causes some confusion as to whether or not he was planning on building or actually constructing the device. Similarly, however, the Scientific American article did reflect Edison's want for a scientific pursuit, quoting Edison as having said, quote, I believe that if we are to make any real progress in the psychic investigation, we must do it with scientific apparatus and in a scientific manner, just as we do in medicine, electricity, chemistry, and other fields. Edison didn't want to give people the idea that he was into the spiritual mumbo-jumbo of the day, so he made sure to tell Scientific American that, quote, I don't claim our personalities pass on to another existence or sphere. I don't claim anything because I don't know anything about the subject. For that matter, no human being knows. But I do claim that it is possible to construct an apparatus which will be so delicate that if there are personalities in another existence or sphere who wish to get in touch with us in this existence or sphere, the apparatus will at least give them a better opportunity to express themselves than the tilting tables and wraps and Ouija boards and mediums and other crude methods now purported to be the only means of communication. Edison may not have believed in the typical description of spirits or entities as people knew it back then, but he did believe that energy could neither be created nor destroyed, only transformed as per the first law of thermodynamics. He said, quote, Our bodies are composed of myriads and myriads of infinitesimal infantismal entities, each in itself a unit of life. There are many indications that we human beings act as a community or ensemble rather than as units. 
That is why I believe that each of us comprises millions upon millions of entities and that our body and our mind represent the vote or voice, whichever you wish to call it, of our entities. The entities live forever. Death is simply the departure of the entities from our body. So, we don't know much about this apparatus other than that Edison, Edison vaguely described it as a valve system used to detect the most delicate and sensitive of particles or energy signatures. However, the ghost machine was in tune with other paranormal and spiritual pursuits of the time, including quite a few other ghost hunting instruments we're going to dip our toes into in this episode. Some other notable early ghost hunting mechanisms consist of a sthenometer, a mirror galvanometer, and one that we're going to dive a little bit into here called a yulolometer. I don't know if I'm saying that correctly, or a ghost howler. These are all instruments used by the American Psychical Laboratory into the 1920s to detect and record psychic and spiritual phenomena. The psychic howler, or ghost howler, or the eulometer, is the 20th century predecessor to the EMF detector as used in detecting spirits, in my opinion. Um, and we'll get to EMF detectors in a little bit. But it works pretty much the same way. According to Dr. Harroward Carrington, a British-American psychic investigator, a eulometer works by revealing the presence of any energy or body, visible or invisible, within its field by a loud noise, which sometimes becomes a howl. The electric energy passing through the amplifying machine and the large coil are affected and variations are produced in the amount of current by any other energy or body approaching it. It is delicately adjusted and the resulting electric changes in the instrument are converted into audible sounds in the telephone receivers placed over the observer's ears. He goes on to say, If a human body, which is a source of electric energy, approaches the coil, it will affect the electric energy passing through it and thus modifying it will cause sounds in the telephone receivers which are plainly audible. The electric energy radiated by the heart when beating, by breathing, etc., is thus recorded when the subject is near the machine. As the whole body approaches, it will howl with a very loud high note, which increases in pitch as the body approaches nearer and nearer the coil. If any form of energy, such as that possessed by a spirit or an astral body, therefore, were in the vicinity and approached this machine, the latter would at once give evidence of its proximity by variations in the electric current, which would at once be heard by the observer at the telephones. That was a mouthful. Those are some run-on sentences. <laughs> Alright, so pretty cool. Eulometer, Thomas Edison's ghost machine. Let's, uh, Back up a little bit from the 1920s and talk about spirit photography. So, um, one famous spirit photograph, claimed spirit photograph, is Abe Lincoln's famous ghost photo. In 1872, spiritualist and photographer William Mumler was a decade into his career as a, well, spiritual photographer... He was capturing ghosts of people's departed loved ones on his camera when taking photo of the, photos of them, or so he claimed. 
Of course, many believed his photos to be a hoax. Mumler himself alleged that his process had been thoroughly examined, and so many people believed that he was a fraud that he was brought to trial. Later acquitted of all charges against him, Mumler continued to capture spirits in his photograph, <laughs> in his photographs, in his photographs, though no one knew how he was doing it. One of his most famous clients was Mary Todd Lincoln, though he apparently didn't know it was her until after the photograph was taken and later developed and he pressed her about her identity. In the photograph, which you can view online very easily, it appears that Lincoln is standing behind a seated Mary with his hands on her shoulders. Some have concluded this to be a trick of double exposure or superimposing existing film over the new film to give the ghostly effect. Now, other, like this one, early alleged fo spirit photos, um, or like this one, similar early alleged spirit photos were later debunked for the most part. Now, you'll see a lot of them with, like, ectoplasm present, uh, or what spiritualists are claiming as ectoplasm, which is, uh, like, spirit goo ejected by the physical mediums coming in contact with the spirits. Yeah. Alright. So, for a long time, people have been deceiving people during seances, um, these really dramatic encounters they feel are more popular and attract more clientele, paying clientele specifically, and make them more money, and thus they continue to fake these contacts, experiences, communications, etc., whatever you want to call them. And spirit rappers are no different. Now, in the early 20th century, when this whole spiritualist craze started, people, spirit rappers, <laughs> were people who would rap or knock on tables, walls, surfaces during seances to deceive people into believing the noises and knocks were from the deceased loved ones wishing to communicate. Oftentimes, one person would be in another room nearby but out of sight to perform the spirit wrappings while the others put on the show of a faked seance for the paying customers. I feel like this is a modern problem as well, as I do feel that many TV paranormal investigation crews like to fake spirit wrappings and other things to grab the attention of the viewer. Um, but who knows, maybe some of those are genuine. I mean, it would be pretty cool if they were. The technique is used by a lot of paranormal investigators these days, as it is viewed as a fairly easy way for spirits or entities to communicate via taps, knocking, or other small noises, if they can manifest the energy. Usually, the investigator will ask the entity to tap once or twice for yes or no, and ask questions from there. That's a pretty easy way of doing it. Yeah. Do you have any experience with uh, spirit wrappings? I would love to know about it. Alright, now we're going to talk about psychomantiums. Psychomantiums are fucking cool and slightly frightening. <laughs> Makes me nervous thinking about being in one. Oof. A psychomantium is a room, usually a small one or a closet, used specifically to act as a portal of sorts to the spirit world. 
These rooms are often left dark and have a sitting area for the psychic or experiencer and have a mirror that can be moved to face the person. It could also just be a very dark enclosed cabinet with a black curtain to shield the experiencer um, from the outside room. The idea, basically, though, is that you sit down and gaze into the mirror or the dark surface like you are scrying. Eventually, you should begin to see things or experience other paranormal activity. There are some psychic mediums who use psychomantium rooms during their seances in order to better receive messages from the dead. These became popular among contemporaries when Raymond Moody brought the idea of a psychomantium back to life. He actually built his own in Alabama, and I can't remember the name of it, but it's named after some, I can't remember, like an alchemist or something like that. Anyways, um, it's a room in which the person is seated and the mirror is turned so that they cannot see their own reflection but can still gaze into it. Now, mirror gazing and scrying is not... Um, a psychomantium specific form of divination. A, an old form of mirror scrying is called catoptromancy. <laughs> Correct me if I'm wrong. But catoptromancy was used by ancient cultures like the Greeks. Many of these underground labyrinthine places with altar bowls and other shit that many believe were used for water scrying have been unearthed. Um, which is pretty cool. If you remember from the Gates to Hell episode, I think it was, we briefly discussed the Cave of the Sibyl, which is something similar, as in an oracle underground communes with spirits and the divine in order to deliver messages, warnings, etc. That's what these underground places that have been unearthed also believe, they also believe we're used for. Um, these altar bowls are deep, some contain things already, or they believe used to contain liquids, possibly used for scrying. Now, I'm also reminded of the scene in Harry Potter where he goes into the... Harry Potter fans don't come after me, but I fucking don't remember the name. But basically in Dumbledore's chamber where he goes into the memory well, basically, you know, that... It's kind of what it reminds me of. That felt like scrying in some way. Um, another thing that you can scry with are dowsing rods. Though dowsing rods themselves are just tools used by those with already heightened senses, I think the concept is interesting enough to mention. Now, dowsing rods aren't used just for divination purposes. In fact, for a long time, people trying to locate petroleum, oil, water for ground wells, etc. have been using dowsing rods to help guide them toward their source point, whether that's an underground spring for a well or a hidden spot with a shit ton of petroleum, you get the point. Sometimes called doodle bugging in the States, apparently, which I just had to mention because that's such a fun term, doodle bugging. Um, I feel like that sounds really <laughs> southern for some reason. I don't know why. It's like, hey, hey Sally, what you doing today? Oh, I think I'm gonna go do some doodle bugging. Um, yeah, anyways. People have used dowsing rods to try and locate dead bodies even. <laughs> yeah, interesting. 
But basically how it works is the dowser holds the real power and ability to locate said water sources um, the or whatever you're looking for. The rod is just a tool. In an article by the French-Canadian genealogist titled The Dowser, a dowser was someone with divining capabilities who used a forked hazel rod to amplify their abilities. The dowser would hold the forked ends firmly in their hands, usually with their palms facing up, while the center of the rod would be pointing up. The dowser would walk about until the center point would twist violently in their hands, fighting its upward direction and indicating the presence of water. In 1917, the U.S. Department of the Interior <laughs> released a 59-page pamphlet titled Water Supply Paper 416 with a heading of The Divining Rod, A History of Water Witching. It was written by G Arthur J. Ellis, who, in the paper, claimed the following. In tracing the history of the subject, it is found that divining rods have been used for all of the following purposes. One to locate ore deposits, two, to discover buried or hidden treasure, three, to find lost landmarks and reestablish property boundaries, four, to detect criminals, five, to analyze personal character, six, to cure diseases, seven, to trace lost or strayed domestic animals, eight, to ensure immunity against ill fortune when preserve, preserved as a fetish, 9. To locate well sites. 10. To trace the courses of underground streams. 11. To determine the amount of water available by drilling at a given spot. 12. To determine the depth at which water or ores occur. 13. To determine the direction of cardinal points. 14. To determine the heights of trees. And 15. To analyze ores and waters. These tools also reportedly held the power to detect criminals. Um, I That was mentioned in the thing and speaking of that <laughs> as late as 1703 people in power in france used dowsing rods to detect the presence of criminals or to confirm whether or not these criminals had committed certain heinous deeds all right now we're gonna talk about spirit boards so the official Ouija board that we know of very well was first produced in 1890 here in the States in Maryland, in Baltimore, Maryland. Numerous studies have been conducted in order to test the efficiency and operation of spirit boards with planchettes. Um, and many of the scientists that overlook these studies believe that the movement of a planchette is entirely in idiomotor response, meaning an involuntary minuscule, minuscule movement directed by the subconscious mind. There are speculations surrounding the origin of the name Ouija. Some thought it was the combination of the German and French words for yes. Uh, I think it was German and French. Others were convinced that the man who started using the boards asked the spirits he was communing with to name it, and the spirits spelled out O-U-I-J-A. I think I like the latter origin story, though if that one is accurate, it does make me a little worried, um, you know, as, as to the power that we're giving to whatever it is by saying that word over and over again. And now that the board is mass-produced, it's like, what have we done? Was it all planned? Was it all planned by the spirit who said this word? Or spelled out this word? 
Uh, yeah, so I won't get too conspiracy theory headed about it though, but it is an intriguing thought nonetheless. Now, there is stigma, of course, surrounding the use of spirit boards. If you watch any of those paranormal shows about uh, people having experiences with Ouija boards, they usually say that it opens something terrible and they tried to burn the board or throw it away or whatever and it kept returning. So, you know, it makes you a little worried about using them. And, you know, I myself suffer from the stigma attached to them and typically shy away from using them or have anything to do with them a little. They intimidate me. I think that while many people have the best intentions, some don't know how to operate them in a safe manner or close the energy down after they're finished so that nothing seeps in and stays in. Um, but that's just me. And until I feel like I'm at a level where I could do that with a group of people who, you know, would also be at that level, then, you know, I'm probably not gonna fuck with them. I have made a Ouija board out of just a glass and a piece of paper as a fucking kid, but, you know, whatever. And no judgment on those who do fuck around with them. Again, I think the idea is tantalizing and maybe with the right group, it would be a safe, dope experience. Who knows? If you have any experiences with spirit boards, I would love to know about it though. Now the use of spirit boards in general seem to date as far back as the 10th century in China during the Song Dynasty. Spirit writing was popular before then, and this practice, spirit writing, is recorded as early as 420 CE. But we're going to talk about Fuji. Fuji is a type of spirit writing that uses a planchette. So try to picture this setup in your head. There's a table filled with sand. On one end of the table, you have two rods that are movable and joined together at the end and hold a stylus. The apparatus hovers, the stylus and rod apparatus, hovers over the sand table. Participating in the ritual, you have one or two people who operate or move the planchette, one of which is possessed by the spirits of the deceased or ancestors, called Shen or Xian. There are also assistants, one of which will smooth out the sand as requested, another to interpret the characters, symbols, messages written in the sand, and yet another to record said messages. Many important Chinese texts are considered to originate from Fuji writing. In fact, there's a name for text obtained through Fuji writings. They're called Jiwen. Excuse me if I'm mispronouncing that. Feel free to correct me. Fuji is practiced by the Quanjin school, which is a branch of Taoism. It is a very old branch dating back to the 1100s in China. The Quanjin school is known to some as the all truth religion or the way of completeness and truth as the name translates to all true. The Quanjin school focuses on Nyeden or internal alchemy and cultivation of the self in order to obtain Wu Wei or true and effortless action. Again, if I'm mispronouncing any of that, let me know. All right. Electromagnetic fields or EMFs are, well, electric and magnetic energy fields that pass through space and are invisible. 
You can also call electromagnetic waves radiation. Some of these electromagnetic fields are non-ionizing, which means that they are considerably low levels of radiation that are normally non-harmful, or so they say, to living things. It's the ionizing EMFs that do the real harm, like x-rays or sunlight. Things that produce non-ionizing EMFs are still worrisome to many people, as some believe that prolonged Prolonged exposure to these electromagnetic fields can be harmful or cause unwanted effects like paranoia, anxiety, skin rashes, headaches, stomach problems, etc. Feelings of being watched, uh, you know, you know. The K2 meter is a popular EMF detector, though originally created for a different market. Keith Tupper of K2 Enterprises said the device has been in production for over 30 years and was originally used to detect electromagnetic fields in relation to their ill negative effects on our health. Before the K2 meters and similar modern EMF detection devices were a thing, many people used the compass as a means to detect spiritual radiation. The idea being that the magnetic field would be distributed disturbed enough by the presence of a spirit to disrupt the focus on the compass needle. Originally composed of iron ore, compass needles would move when a spirit was nearby, supposedly. Interesting only in that iron is used to ward off negative entities. And of course, before the compass, there were instruments such as the eulometer that we discussed earlier. All right, now we're going to talk about EVPs, electronic voice phenomena. Scientists believe EVPs to be a form of auditory periodolia, in which the persons hearing the recorded voices are simply allowing their brains to put together words from otherwise meaningless or unrecognizable sounds or noises. Much like the visual periodolia, where you see faces and flowers and woodknots and so on, you know. Um, Now, for those that do believe in the validity of EVPs, especially in the paranormal world, they are a fascinating find, they're little evidence gems, if you will. Attila von Soleil first tried capturing electronic voice phenomena in 1941 with a 78 RPM record, but later switched to a reel-to-reel tape recorder and claimed success. He, together with his partner Raymond Bayless, created an insulated cabinet in which there was a microphone. Outside of this cabinet was a speaker and the reel-to-reel recording device. They picked up messages they claimed to have not heard on the external speaker at the time of the experiment, suggesting that the voices were from disembodied spirits. They published their findings in 1959, and Bayless later wrote a book about it. Soleil and Bayless getting their work published wasn't the only thing popping in 1959 in regards to EVPs. In fact, in the same year, Friedrich Jurgensen, a Swedish film producer and painter, was reviewing his earlier recordings of bird sounds when he claimed to hear the voice of his deceased father and his deceased wife who called out to him. So moved by these voices, Jurgensen made other recordings reporting reportedly also catching the voice of his deceased mother as well. In 1980, 
George Meek and William O'Neill developed an audio recording device they would call the Spiricom. It was years earlier, during a seance, that George Meek would receive messages from someone claiming to be the spirit of a scientist. The scientist spirit gave Meek instructions for the construction of an apparatus that would be developed in years to come. This is the Spiricom. Meek released the design and technical manual to researchers for free, so I have linked said manual in the reading recommendations for you guys. According to a 1982 MetaScience publication, the Spiricom device itself was made up of a tape recorder and microphone, a preamplifier, a demodulator, a high-frequency RF generator, and an antenna measuring a foot in length. Of course, the first few builds of the device produced no results of value, that is, until Meek met William O'Neill. O'Neill claimed to have already established two-way communication between the living and the dead via mediumship and had conversed with deceased people himself several times. O'Neill was also an electronics engineer, and so the two began working together on the third and then on the fourth version of the Spiricom, which would be known as the Mark III and the Mark IV. With the Mark IV, O'Neill began to have regular conversations with a deceased doctor whose existence and death were confirmed as real. Apparently, dead Dr. George Jeffries Mueller told the two creators that they should use 13 specific tones played together in a specific way to enable spirits to communicate through the device. O'Neill and Meek recorded over 20 hours of conversation between the doctor and O'Neill, though the recordings consist mainly of a buzzing sound that overlaps the 13-tone mixture. A later article was published titled Spiricom or Spiricon, which dove into the buzzing sound and other strange audible noises in the recordings. The results? They suspected O'Neill was using an electrolarynx, which is a device used by people who have issues with their voice box larynx. After O'Neill died, it was reported that an electrolarynx was discovered among his possessions. Dun, dun, dun. While many studies have been conducted around the subject of EVPs and their validity or scientific merit, it is clear that while many believers agree on their existence, they tend to disagree on what the voices are saying. There isn't much research being done to determine the effects of our subconscious warping our subconscious mind warping our interpretations of the EVPs. I prefer to write down what I'm hearing rather than saying it out loud initially to avoid polluting someone else's interpretation because I do think that you can do that and that it plays a part um, in how your brain unwraps what you're hearing. Maybe we are hearing what we expect to hear, or maybe our subconscious mind has the power to manipulate sound frequencies and morph them into words that we can hear. Speaking of devices used to detect the voices of spirits, our other good pal, Nikola Tesla, has created one such device. He used a simple crystal radio circuit to break down electromagnetic waves into sounds. Upon listening to the device, Tesla began to freak himself out, supposedly writing, My first observations positively terrified me, as there was present in them something mysterious, not to say supernatural, and I was alone in my laboratory at night. He wrote this in 1901, and then later, in 1918, wrote, 
The sounds I am listening to every night at first appear to be human voices conversing back and forth in a language I cannot understand. I find it difficult to imagine that I am actually hearing real voices from people not of this planet. There must be a more simple explanation that has so far eluded me. Some of you may know the origin of the Melmeter, 8704, but for those of you who don't, here you go. The Melmeter was first devised by electrical engineer Gary Galka after his daughter, Melissa, tragically died following a car accident in September of 2004. His family experienced after-death communication from a spirit they believed to belong to their daughter, such as light anomalies in the house, the doorbell ringing, apparitions, and feeling of a presence nearby. Feelings of a presence nearby. Galka named the device after his daughter Melissa, 8704, being the years of her birth and her bodily death. The Melmeter is both an ambient thermometer and an EMF detector and is very popular among ghost hunters these days. It's also not terribly expensive, so probably one of the easier devices to obtain for investigations. Just to very, very briefly skirt over some more modern devices of choice, to finish this off, we have the SLS Connect camera, which was, I guess, originally developed for use in video games. This device can map out physical bodies in a 3D setting, which paranormal investigators use to try and detect unseen spirits. That, uh, and some of the videos of people capturing what they think are spirits on these things, yeah, sometimes these things are doing some crazy shit. So, you know, I don't know. Thermal imaging, or INF, cameras are used to identify anomalous heat signatures or cold spots that could indicate the presence of something otherworldly. Sometimes, um, things show up on these cameras but do not appear to the naked eye, which is also interesting. So you have your thermal imaging, your infrared, all that good stuff. And then you have your ghost box, your Frank's box, your spirit box, um, yeah which uses radio frequency band sweeps to allow spirits to pluck out words and phrases for use in their communication with us. Alrighty. I told you it was gonna be mostly equipment. <laughs> I don't really think we went over any methods there. Um, but if you listen to the show, you're probably familiar with different ghost hunting methods. I mean, there's also some really modern, popular methods like the Estes method where you are blindfolded and you have headphones on that are producing white noise sounds or sweeps over radio AMF and F AM and FM bands. Um, and another person is asking questions. They're... It's just call and response techniques. You can use trigger objects. Which are, you know, like if you're, if you were investigating the Olusti battlefield or the Gettysburg battlefield, maybe you play sounds of cannons being fired or you bring cigars um, or say phrases that were common to <clears throat> soldiers at the time, you know, stuff like that. Trigger objects, trigger phrases, trigger sounds, um, smells. All that good stuff. I would recommend never 
trying to um, be negative about your approach or or too playful. I would never recommend trying to provoke anything to happen. And of course, always protect yourself and those with you. But you don't need me to tell you that. You, you already know these things, right? Reading recommendations. Thomas Edison and the Realm Beyond. It's actually a little short documentary that you can watch on Vimeo or on YouTube, but I have linked it for you. Sherlock Holmes and the Adventure of the Ghost Machine, written by David McGregor. I have linked that for you as well. Laboratory Investigations into Psychic Phenomena by Dr. Hereward Carrington. I've got that Department of the Interior Water Supply 416 for you called The Divining Rod, A History of Water Witching with a Bibliography. Family Reunions, Visionary Encounters with the Departed in a Modern-Day Psychomantium by Raymond A. Moody, Jr. Alrighty, and then we've got an article titled Psychomantium Research, a Pilot Study, and that is taken from the Journal of Near-Death Studies compiled by the International Association of Near-Death Studies, IANDS. Assessing Electronic Voice Phenomena Through Speech Science. This is an honors thesis that I found interesting by Cassie C. Axtell. An article titled, Hearing Ghost Voices Relies on Pseudoscience and Fallibility of Human Perception. This one is kind of like a um, devil's, devil's advocate type uh, deal, you know? So just imposing viewpoint type thing, you know? Always got to have that in there. And then uh, an electromagnetic etheric systems approach to communications with other levels of human consciousness. This one is very interesting as well. But that is going to be a wrap on this episode of the Primordia podcast, your source for strange. I really hope you guys weren't too bored with this episode. I know it wasn't spooky. It was really more of like a uh, historical take on uh, ghost hunting equipment, basically. But there were some of these that I had never heard about before, so very interesting to me. I hope you guys enjoyed. As always, thank you so, so, so much for listening. And remember, stay strange.